Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, we are broadcasting, as we always do, from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, we're especially pleased today to uh, let you know that we are definitely moving ahead with our, uh, with our connection with the folks over at CrossPolitik and the FLF Network, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And uh, Glenn and I, we, we enjoyed a, a little... Uh, spot on the on their uh, radio show or their podcast the other day, and that was that was great to see. But anyway, uh, with that said, I'll uh, let the rest of the uh, the crew introduce themselves. And uh, why don't we start with you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I'm Thomas Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, and I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Elizabeth Sunshine. I'm a PhD student at the University of Notre Dame studying biblical studies. And like I said, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I'm the, uh, the slouch around here. I don't teach at any major institutions or anything. I'm just a pastor. <laughs> anyway, <Just>. uh, <laughs> so uh, Glenn, it's your day. Uh, what are we talking about? Well, I thought we would uh, take on a topic that we've talked a little bit about before, which is the idea of uh, the world having become disenchanted. Hmm. But in order to start looking at what we mean when we talk about disenchantment, I wanted to uh, go back and look at the word enchantment and some of the implications there. I'm inspired uh, in this by a, a poet and literary figure, John Chardee, who in the, oh, must have been the early 80s, used to do a segment on Morning Edition on NPR called The Word Ramble. So what we're going to do is a bit of a word ramble around the word enchantment and some of its implications. So let's just start off. The word enchantment itself, uh, from its etymology, means to sing into something. Hmm. And what that implies, of course, is that through singing, you're introducing, or chanting, you're introducing magic into something. So an enchantment is something like a spell. It's something that has magic. But the word gets used in a lot of other ways, too. So, for example, we can talk about an enchanting evening. We can talk about an enchanting young woman. We can talk about um, a feeling of enchantment at a landscape, things like that. And what we're saying there, it's a metaphor, we're saying that there's something magical about it. Okay? And in fact, you know, if you're thinking about the, using the word with, with people, if you talk about them as enchanting, another word that could be used similarly is you could describe them as charming. Right. And the yeah. word and the word charm is, of course, again a word that points to something that's filled with magic. Okay. Um, charming, uh, enchanting people are people who are glamorous. The word glamour is an old word that means magic. Hmm. A glamour Man, is a, a theme that just keeps on giving. Yeah, a, 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 a glamour is, is a spell. And by the way, <laughs> in order to get glamour, one of the ways we do this today is through the use of cosmetics. <laughs> the word cosmetics is connected to the Greek word cosmos, right. uh, which of course means the, the universe and everything that's in it. But the cosmos was viewed by the Greeks as a place of ordered beauty. 
Mm-hmm. And from ordered beauty, you get the idea of cosmetics, which brings you back to glamour. Right, right. Now, what's a little less clear is that the word glamour, in its original sense of a kind of, of magic, is also directly connected to the word grammar, with okay. an R rather than an L. Right. Grammar and glamour, really, in their root, are the same word. And the grammar, of course, is words and right. things like that. But there was considered to be magic in words. Right. As a matter of fact, well, one of the things you've got to learn to do with words is to spell them. <laughs> right, here we go. And the word spell for spelling a word in English and the word spell as in casting a spell both come from the German word spiel, meaning to say. Oh, no. <laughs> That's slang, spiel. You know, yep. you, a whole lot of spiel there. <laughs> spiel, spielen is to, is to speak right, in German. Right, right. So spelling something and spelling something, yeah. spelling a word or spelling a person or what have you, it, it's the same root yeah. because grammar is magic. Words are magic. And in fact, when you are using magic words, they take the form of something called an incantation, mm-hmm. which is the Latin version of the French enchantment. Wow. Yeah, it right. means to speak or to sing into something. Right. Okay, so when we talk about enchantment, all of these different ideas come into play. Right. Music. We can think of the music of the spheres. We can think in Tolkien-esque terms of the music of the Ainurim, when music becomes the the vehicle of creating creating, the cosmos. That's the one I was thinking of when you mentioned it. Um, Aslan sings Narnia into existence. So music... It's almost like these guys knew things about the Middle Ages and the ancient world. Tolkien, you know, Lewis. Yeah, and more than a little. <laughs> more than so, a little. <laughs> so, so music and the cosmos are, cre- are connected, as are, as is beauty, yeah. as is words meaning logos. Right. Um, all of these things come together, and there is something magical yeah. about them. Yeah. They're imbued with meaning, they're imbued with significance, they're imbued with eternal realities. Right. Right. Now, 19th century, a social scientist by the name of Max Weber. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, Weber. Weber is best known for the Weber thesis, which argues that uh, Protestantism and specifically Calvinism is responsible for the development of um, essentially modern society uh, via science, technology, Hmm. uh, economic development, all of those kinds of things. But for my purposes here, I want to look at another idea that Weber championed, which is an idea that he called the disenchantment of the world. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What he said is that, and, and there were several other people in the 19th century who were going the, in this direction, but Weber specifically used the term disenchantment. What Weber said was that the modern world of science has disenchanted the world. Mm-hmm. It has removed the magic from it. Mm-hmm. It's removed all kinds of things from it, and is, it has left the world as a dry, barren kind of place. Right. Um, a world, as I put it before in some of our other seg- uh, uh, weeks, uh, a world of facts but not meaning. Hmm. Right. And so Weber was really concerned about this because he said, in, in essence, once you take the enchantment out of the world, 
people are left without meaning. They're left without purpose. And, and so he believed that what needed to happen was the world needed to be re-enchanted. Hmm. But the problem is, how? Hmm. Right. And what he feared was that re-enchantment would take place via a demagogue of some sort. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, he is really echoing or anticipating, I'm not sure the exact chronology here, Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch who comes to create meaning out of nothing mm -hmm. and inspire the world to follow him. Right. What he was worried about is that the enchantment would take the form of someone like Hitler. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was, that was Weber's basic idea and his real concern about it. Uh, the fact, again, that, that the world needs to be re-enchanted for people to find meaning or purpose, but the danger of demagoguery and, um, you know, real evil coming out of this attempt to re-enchant. Um, I'd like to just go back for a second into the idea of enchantment and spell out what disenchantment actually ends up looking like. If we, if we think about enchantment in the terms that I used, uh, what does it mean? And Weber is, by the way, I think Weber is exactly right here that, that modernity and scientism have thoroughly disenchanted the world. But what does that mean? Well, what it means is that in a very real sense, as I said, the magic has gone out of it. There's nothing particularly special anymore. But in the course of losing magic, you also lose beauty. You lose the cosmos. Right. You lose um, the sense that the universe is ordered and structured and makes sense. You, you, you lose um, not only glamour, but you lose grammar. You lose meaning. Um, words um, get stripped of anything other than arbitrary significance. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just a semi-random set of sounds that we use conventionally for something, but that don't have true meaning. Um, if you lose language, you if you lose word, you use, lose logos, you lose logic. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things, reason, everything else, disappears in a disenchanted world. Right. And so if you take a look at the trends that have occurred within the 20th century, over the last hundred years or so, what do you see? You see the development of modern art, which is a complete rejection of any concept of beauty at all. Right. You see uh, a progressive deflating of the significance of language. Uh, words are being stripped of their meaning. They are being used in ways that uh, that make no sense anymore. Um, you know, An interesting point on that. Don't want to stop the flow of thought, but uh, in a, that's very true, but then you also have a strange sort of power infused in words as well. Right. So they almost become, yes, detached from, from a, a kind of context of, of meaning, reference, and orientation, but then they become seen as almost like the vehicles of, of power and oppression. Right. Yes, word, words, are, words are stripped of meaning in the formal sense of the word, but what yeah. they, they become a tool for, they're, they're a social convention. Yeah. And so they can be used powerfully as a tool of social control, but that social control doesn't have any connection necessarily to reality. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that you can you can see headlines about pregnant men, yes, right, yeah, I mean, that's right. Point, points to right. the fact right. that that words are being stripped of any significance, that's right. connection to anything in the external world. We just saw this recently with uh, with. Justice Thomas and, Ginsburg, and Justice Ginsburg. I don't know if you guys saw the headline, but, but basically, uh, 
Justice Thomas gave a uh, minority opinion, I think it was minority opinion or yes. supporting opinion, that uh, really did a marvelous uh, job of demonstrating sort of the eugenic character, of, you know, to, you know, abortion. You know, in other words, it's been uh, used to target, you know, mm-hmm. ethnic minorities, particularly black folks. And he uh, used the word mother for a woman who was pregnant. And Justice Ginsburg uh, took exception to that. She, she said that essentially that a woman is only a mother if she wills to be. So it's not... Oh, there's not, your, it's there's not, your voluntarism and your... Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there it is again. So it becomes a power game. Yeah. Everything's a power game. Yeah. Right. Which and is possible because the words are no longer connected to anything outside of us, outside right. of that's our right. Own right. That's right. social, like you said, social conventions. conventions. Right, right. Yeah. So I, uh, the reason for bringing this up is that I think this idea of disenchantment is, I mean, we can, we can pursue lots of other elements of this, but I think that this is a really powerful idea, particularly if you unpack the concept of enchantment you know, if you expand it out to the degree that I did here, mm. you can actually see that this disenchantment is working on multiple levels mm. in ways that are really corrosive mm-hmm. um, to pretty much anything that they touch. Right. And yet it's, you know, it's a, it's a very powerful force within our society right now. Yeah, mm. right, right. Yeah, and, and it, it sets us against one another because if, mm-hmm. if words are just simply my will kind of externalized, Mm-hmm. Then every 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 uh, thing I say is a kind of spell. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I was sort of on to. Is yeah. it, it's strange because yes, it, it took it out of a, a, a in sort of external web of cosmic meaning, right? right. And it, in, it it made it, it it tied it to the individual's will and their will to expression. So it it now becomes almost you know it's tied to power. It's, but it is sort of like a spell. Almost, you cre- you're creating the reality that you will forth, and you and you have to uh, cloak it, which gets us to, back to the hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah, you know that, you know Nietzsche and the other night yeah, century right. guys all all sort of, you know, basically there's something at work beneath the surface here. You can't take anything, you know, at, at, on at the level of the surface meaning. And it's always there's an ill, it's yeah. always an ill, you know. Somebody's out to get you. Yeah. So uh, the, what ends up happening is now you, you it's, it's, it, it's satanic. And what, what I'm getting at is yeah. that yeah. when we think about magic, yeah. you know, when you look at, say, you know, fantasy literature, there's white magic. And then there's dark magic. That's right. right? Yeah. So what's the difference between the good magic of Aslan, for yeah. example, or the dark magic of the of the wicked queen, the white witch, or whatever? Well, it, what it, what it is is that in one case, uh, it's in accordance with the nature of things, which is the, the good magic. In other words, it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of spell that that is a blessing, a fulfillment. You see this kind of spell casting in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's what I was think, just thinking. It's just think about it. You know, like, like when you think about the blessing, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, that Isaac gives to Jacob mm-hmm. and Esau. One of the things that always struck me is really weird about that whole episode mm-hmm. is, is, you know, today if someone would say, oops, I thought you were, I thought you were Esau. I take back <laughs> everything I just said. <laughs> I didn't mean it. <laughs> That's what Isaac could have done in today's situation. Like, but but for for people uh, in in that time, when it's out of the mouth, it's gone. 
In other words, it's, it's been it's, it's been a state decree. Yeah, it's, it's in other words, it, it alters reality. Yeah, uh, but but so it's powerful. But uh, when you think about you know satanic spells or, or black magic, it's all about twisting reality. It's yeah. all about the lie. Yeah, it, you know, and, and also one characteristic universally in um, of black magic or one form of black magic, universally, is anything that controls another person's will. Right. That is always seen. Hmm. I don't know of any instance in which that is not seen as evil. Yeah, yeah. And And what you're doing here, if you're thinking about the way we use language, we're trying to use it to control other people. It's effectively black magic. And and, and tied to that is is the dissolution of the created order, which we mentioned before, because there is a, a tie to that is almost... Continuous reality denial. Yeah, there is a redefinition of these these things that have been obvious, right? right. Um, uh, for humanity um, right. since, since the line. start. Yeah. 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 So you think about Babel. You know, think about the tower. Mm-hmm. What is what goes? On? I've often thought hmm. what, what's going on with Babel. Of course, is there's a kind of assault on heaven. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But how isn't it interesting how the Lord uses language and the confusion of language to undermine the, the project? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me hmm. that we're just, we've descended into a kind of babble today, hmm. which will undermine our political order. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You, you, it'll be impossible to order anything without just raw force. Well, you know, if you think about it, I, we seem to keep coming back to the transgender thing because yeah, it, it yeah. illustrates so many of these problems. Yeah. If, if I am what I perceive myself to be, and that is different from what you perceive me to be, you're wrong. That's right. right, right. My reality is who I really am. Hmm. Now, if you take that to its conclusion, what that implies is that each of us has our own reality that may or may not correspond to what anybody, that is, they may not be accessible to anybody else except by self-revelation. It may not be evident, it may not be empirically verifiable, it may even be counter the empirical evidence. If you accept that as even a possibility of what the truth is, what you have done then is you have defined truth as being something that's radically subjective. And once you do that, you have a recipe for social chaos. You have a recipe in which you are setting up intractable classes of people or parties of people or factions or ideologies that will be at war with each other forever because each of them has their own facts that are not empirically verifiable, that are not common, that are not communally accessible. And this is this is right where uh, systematic theologians would say this is the significance of studying theology and doing sound doctrine and uh, scriptural exegesis because that, as we've talked about in other episodes, is part of that trajectory from which when we get the creator-creation distinction off and it's no longer an analog- analogous conception of the image of God, um, what happens is we develop a univocal, a one-to-one notion. So basically the human being becomes a, a micro-expression of God himself, and therefore just as God creates ex nihilo, a will undetermined by any premise, yeah. we become micro of that, uh, micro-versions of that, and so it's our will that is therefore, like the creators, creating yeah. our reality and who we are ex nihilo. And I would probably say that's something going on with what helped lead to these 
these conditions with the existentialism, where, where nature kind of followed yeah. the kind of act. Um, I, it's been a long time since I've thought along those lines, but right. it just this right. reminded me of it. Right. Well, and, you know, when we get back to the garden, for example, and, and what does it mean to, um, you know, to, to eat of the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Mm. Mm. Um, there have been different approaches to interpreting the, the nature of that statement, but one of the things that, of course, goes on within the, the framework of the temptation is the calling into question of God's word. Mm-hmm. When the serpent asks rhetorically, will you die? Or in other words, is you know, essentially calling that calling God's word into question, question. His statements into question. There, there is a kind of reconstrual of meaning. Yeah, uh, the the serpent, you know, brings meaning down to the level of of, of Eve and Adam, and says, well, you can define. It. So an alternative hermeneutic. So to tie this into broader questions of good and evil, um, the Plato has Socrates discussing with Eleuthero the, the nature of basically the nature of good and evil relative to the gods. Mm-hmm. You know, do, is something that the gods is something good because the gods will it, or yeah, do the gods right. will it because it's good? <laughs> and, the and, and, and the the answer is neither. That's right. It's that what is good is what corresponds to the character of God. Yeah. You know, God's character is good, That's right. therefore good is what corresponds to him. That becomes a really interesting tool then if you're going to go Neoplatonic and d- describe evil as the negation of good, right. as, as the private right. idea of yeah. privation. But, yeah. So anything that does not correspond to the character of God then becomes evil. Okay. Now, when you think about it that way, you can start looking at the character of God and drawing conclusions by inverting it about what evil is. So, for example, you know, in the beginning was the word. God is word. God is logic. God is reason. All of those kinds of things. Anything that violates that is evil. You know, God is faithful. Being unfaithful is evil. I mean, we we can extend this further and further and further. And when you take a look, again, going back to to enchantment, when you take a look at all the implications of that word, beauty, um, things that are appealing, that are are um, that are true, that that are connected to cosmos, that are connected to order and beauty, that are connected to to the nature of the world, that are connected to words and meaning, all of those kinds of things are all connected to the nature of God. Uh, yes. And when you lose them, when you turn away from them, when you reject them, you are doing evil. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, we don't oftentimes don't, don't think about how significant that ordering aspect of the Genesis account is. Everyone spends their time, I think, often on the wrong questions of Genesis. That ordering has to do exactly with that, just mm-hmm. as the, the fundamental distinction that God is from all else, that is actually inscribed in the ordering of everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so to go against that ordering and, and the moral order, the created order, the ends mm-hmm. kinds, is therefore to, yes, to, to introduce something into the picture that is fundamentally at odds and therefore is, you know, I, I think, you know, death, hell, and the grave is, a, is about the best set of... You know, and, and when you think about it, that, that God created things with natural ends. There are purposes that, that things are created for. 
when you pervert something, turn it away from its natural purpose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's evil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And again, you know, going to the whole LGBT thing, what are, what, well, let's just look at the biological terms. What is the reproductive system there for? Yeah, and to turn it to something else is therefore to pervert it from its original purpose, therefore evil. It, we can extend this into it, it, area. It's interesting after because area. that, that <laughs> presses the very issue that it, we're confronting because this alternative theology, which says it's not what it was, it's not what nature actually unfolded to be. It's what we, as our own creators, actually have a say in doing with nature. It's almost like we, we are these mini-creators, not in the sense of cultivating and bringing about those ends, but actually as introducing new forms and new meanings from, from our own center. I was thinking about this as, you know, as the, the conversation's unfolding. I, it occurred to me that uh, the anomalists were you know, obsessed with preserving God's freedom. They were afraid yeah. that if there was a third thing, getting back to, you know, the question is, you know, is something good because God says it or yeah. is it, you know, God say it because it's good. They wanted to eliminate the tertium quid. They wanted to get rid of that third thing. Yeah. So, you know, that that's where we get, you know, you know, sort of Occam's razor, yeah. cutting away the unnecessary stuff. The problem is, is that it wasn't unnecessary. Now, I know what the fear was. The fear was that is that God could get trapped in his sort of sort of the, the structures that he's made, sort of yes. taking us back to Babel, Babylon, yeah, yeah. you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, yeah. sort of being cornered by his advisors because you said this, yeah, your yeah, favorite yeah. guy, you know, yeah. you know, your favorite guy was doing the very thing you said you shouldn't, you yeah. shouldn't do, and yeah. therefore, you know, and so there, so you could say this third thing, whether we're talking about the universals, That's the forms, right. yeah. whatever we're talking about, whether you know, if we're talking about Aristotle and we're talking about, yeah. you know, sort of. You know, nature and ends and all these different things. They that's wanted right. to just eliminate all that stuff. That's right. So God can never get trapped. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what happens in Islam. Yes, well, yeah, and I think they picked it up from Islam. Uh, I, that's yeah. that's yeah. the point. I think, I think that comes yeah, in right about there. They're being influenced from, by Islamic thought at that yeah. point. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And, and interestingly, it was, if my historical memory is right, a lot of the Aristotelian thought that came through that actual... That, that line, the right. Islamic theologians. Oh yeah, the yeah, new Aristotle you, you, in the twelfth century. Which, we, yeah, yeah, if you if you look back at the golden age of Islam, it's the golden age of sort of Muhammad meets Aristotle. And yeah. when you get rid of Aristotle, then you end up with Al Qaeda. Yes, <laughs> just the horror. That's right. The horrors. And, and Aquinas was kind of built trying to build on that and actually uh, take it take it in very different directions, but actually enter that. So, like when yeah. I listen to the you know the account of Islamic theology and so forth, you know, the, there's this point, you know, when yeah, they're the, when they're reacting, you know, sort of the fundamentalist. I mean, you, this is this is where yeah. the vile Islam that we know today came from. Yeah. was the rejection of Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, getting back to this whole matter, hmm. um, you wouldn't have the gospel without the law, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, there's something that's yeah. some, there's some sense in which God's will has been externalized, yeah. and it appears as though God's been trapped. He wants to save us, yeah. but we're condemned by the very thing that he's established, which is the law. Yeah, yeah. And so isn't that a tertium quid? Isn't that a third thing? Mm-hmm. But wouldn't you know it, God is so clever <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that he actually uses the law against itself to yeah. redeem us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, what looks like 
you know, uh, a situation which, where God is trapped, Good. the devil yeah. is the accuser. Yeah. yeah. That's right, the accuser of the brethren. Yeah. And God, you know, he's yeah. always pointing the finger. He says, okay, point it at me. This is something that, that, that Satan does not anticipate. That's right. <laughs> so there you see sovereignty in action right. in a way that it's, it, it, can, it can affirm everything yes. and, and also transcend it because of the... I think we just killed yeah. nominalism's we did. only justification. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and sometimes I think even the Anselmic tradition can fall into that trap. You know, so yeah. bound to deal with justice that this is the only way possible rather than understanding this as part of the transcendent freedom of God to actually overcome. And I think one of the things that the Reformers got really, you know, really right is the idea that there are certain things that are, that only God knows. Yeah. In other words, God has something going on that we can't figure out. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And, And the Eastern Church's approach to justification is, comes from an entirely different direction because they don't have the... You know, if if you look at the the at Anselm and the other people in the so-called Renaissance of the 12th century, that all began because of a growth of urban life, which required a recovery of commercial law and things like that. So they went to study Roman law, and the whole revival right. of education begins right. with the revival of the study of law. Then Anselm comes along mm. and takes law and applies it right. to theology. Sure, that's right. That's and then right. that shapes the entire Western theological yeah. tradition. Yeah. It's not the problem that comes up is that both West and the East say it's either or. When I think it's both. And. I think yeah, that's I true. Yeah. Right? I think I think right. that's true. I mean, in in scriptures, I think hold those things in place. Yeah. That's why I can draw off of that theology without having to lose all any of my performed distinctions. Right. Just mm-hmm. like the classical teaching in the metaphysics of creation. The the gift character of creation is matched, I think, best by the pure gift character of grace and salvation. I think yes. they are they, new creation and new creation are gift all the way down. And I think when we get that, we don't have to play that either or game, and we can incorporate all the riches of, of the different traditions and still say, we this is where the reformed offers something that no one else does. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. covenant theology, you know, is yeah. our great gift. Yeah. To the larger church, yeah, and I think even the Catholics, you yeah. know, and I don't know if the East will ever admit it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the Catholics I hear, you know, sort of on this, you know, they're squeaking in some covenant talk. <laughs> oh, it'll be in the it'll be the East I too. I had <laughs> a professor at Notre Dame give an account of uh, Abraham and his um, um, his. Um, how he receives the promises first by, um, well, by faith alone. Um, right, right. That to, um, he, he believes um, God when God says, go leave your home and go to this land I will show you. But then that promise gets repeated afterward in, um, after, uh, at the binding of Isaac, right. where um, he get, receives that same promise again. And this time it's because you have not withheld your only son. And so right. this Catholic professor was saying, yeah, it starts with grace and right. um, then and then only after that goes with um, it goes to works and one of my classmates raised her hand and said that's pretty much what Calvin says right, right, <laughs> and right. the professor didn't know that but um, right, right. It, it's yeah right, I think right. yeah. the best of the traditions get at it right. and right. yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. returning from a very long tangent <laughs> um, the the thing that. I find most exciting on this whole enchant and disenchantment thing 
is that the answer for re-enchanting the world is the gospel. Yeah. 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 It is the gospel properly understood. Absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, we have a, a, a greatly reduced gospel, particularly in American evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, and even, I hate to say this, in a lot of the Reformed guys, too. It, it, it's a vastly reduced gospel, but, but recovering the gospel in its fullness is the way to re-enchant the world. And I think, yeah, and I think our emphasis on metaphysics of creation has com- been complementing that, because that's part of what got ripped out of a f- the, the full picture of the gospel. It's the vindication of the created order in the resurrection um, that fills that out. And so the classical, you know, this is why, you know, dealing with patristic sources and their engagement with scripture and the way in which, they, I mean, they very much carried on the enchanted um, the enchanted uh, the biblical picture of the gospel, and yet we're engaging the enchantments that were, were around them and trying to reorient them to to the gospel picture. And so, yes, you, you have someone like Lewis come along much later, a Tolkien, and they're they're picking that vision back up. Yeah, I mean, the the typical person in America, I would say, even in the Catholic Church will see Christianity in terms of sin and salvation. Those are the middle two chapters. You've got creation and new creation bracketing them, or creation and consummation, or creation and... Restoration. Restoration. Yeah. I mean, however you put or it. Eschatology. Is yeah. The, you know. Yeah. How, yeah. However you put it, the fact that we focus only on chapter two and three and not on one and four right. is what prevents us from re-enchanting the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and one of the reasons that perhaps that's the case is there's a, I think a couple things going on. One is is that the sort of utilitarian frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is congenial to many modern people yeah. and to many pastors. You know, the, the idea that I, I'm here to sort of make it happen, and I can make it happen by sort of you know, using language, using sort of bureaucratic structures, using marketing savvy to kind of make my church this, this enormous whatever, you know, uh, panoply of... of, of uh, What's in it for you? Or you know, sort yeah. of like a mall of America yeah. Christian version. Yeah, what, what do, what, you know, and, and then there is uh, Matt Levering, a Catholic theologian who wrote uh, a great book, Scripture Metaphysics. He sort of said it uh, with its kind of the partner of utilitarians, his pragmatism. Yeah, that's right. sort of the God right. of the age. Right. And even the Trinitarian, the, all of this stuff, is, it, it's only good insofar as it functions so, towards some other human, right. humanistic end. Right. Um, rather than being the end itself and therefore something that we are called to conform to and actually participate in, which gets us right into enchantment. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And moving it on a different level, my latest book, wrote, which I wrote with a guy named Jerry Trousdale, who's a missiologist, compares the growth of the church in the global south to the growth of the church in the global north. Yeah. And the differences are staggering. The church in the south is exploding, right. whereas the church here is at best stagnant. And a couple of the key differences are, first of all, they've got a supernatural worldview, and we don't. Yeah, that's right. But secondly, they don't have the problem that we have of having more resources than we know what to do with. Yeah. Which means that they're forced to do two things, rely on God, but also follow the directions in the Bible rather than following the consultants. 
Right. We can pay the consultants to tell right. us how to do things, and they take they take insights from the business world and try to apply them to the it church. It tends not to be theological consultancy. And the problem with that is you cannot build the kingdom of God using means drawn from the kingdom of man. Yeah, right. Yeah. I've heard it said, you know, you, what, what you win them with is what you win them to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard that mm-hmm. statement, yep. but it's it's so if you win them with entertainment, you've won them to entertainment. And interestingly, with that is sort of the way in which this sort of naivety is we become so familiar with the larger liturgies of like, you know, um, consumer culture or things like that, that, you know, for us, marketing is just the next logical step to add to the church. But we don't realize we're bringing all kinds of unconverted, unconverted um, relationships and ideas into something which are actually stifling and putting into a container those uh, scriptural um, right. uh, centers which should be driving the whole thing rather than actually put into this marketing container. Right. And so, we're, yeah, we're dealing with an unconverted frame. Right. right. And, and because of that, we're importing relationships to human that are driven by this kind of, you know, you know, radical libertarianism or radical consumerism or these things like that. So it's all about what I get out of this and the only relation in the church you have for me is what I'm going to get out of it. It's not about actually washing each other's feet. You know? Right. You know? Yeah. Or connecting into an enchanted world. Yeah, that's the best and, way to put it. And yeah. the source of enchantment. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm, I'm currently uh, reading some, some uh, George MacDonald Fantasties. Just recently, just finished that. Now I'm breaking my way through Lilith, and it's pretty clear that what you know McDonald is doing is dealing with this very this very matter in mm-hmm. those books. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in in what he's doing, he's he's kind of harkening back to Coleridge as well. Mm-hmm. There was there was there's been some reactions to this, yeah, mm-hmm. but. But it seems to me that some of these reactions, romanticism is, is an example. Yeah, these is, but, yeah. But it seems to me that one of the problems with romanticism is that it, it, it is withdrawn into consciousness. Yeah. It, it really doesn't uh, sort of believe that it's possible to, to see things, you know, as they are in themselves, to know yeah. things in themselves. That's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. as you know, one of the things that, that modern philosophy claims is impossible. You know, that we can know things in themselves. What you get is this fragmentation after, you know, it's sort of, you see it in history, in theology, especially after sort of the synthesis that was worked so hard in the church between creation and the creator and the, the proper form of enchantment. Is, is when you get that broken down, nominalism, voluntarism, and the Enlightenment starts to become a new kind of unity. Um, Peter Gay writes about a lot of this, the uh, Yale uh, historian of ideas. He writes a lot of this idea that, you know, sort of, and, and Louis Dupre um, for right. Yale right. as well, that the, the, the Enlightenment became a new way to order the fragments. Yeah. Well, these things didn't fit in the Enlightenment. They were marginalized, yeah. the kind of the enchantment stuff. So you do have these places in which, you know, I think Isaiah Berlin talks about, the, the, he's got a book, something like the crooked something of timber or something. Oh, I know what you're talking about. It, it, it's all about these outcasts in, that tried to re-enchant the world, but they were they were 
they were successful only within a certain reach because yeah. they couldn't fit into that unified unified vision which held those things not right. perfectly but they were they were ordered and and so and uh, there's a few other writers they've come out recently I can't think of their names at the moment but they've talked about there has never been a full disenchantment what happens is they get pocketed and Karl Barth run, once wrote in his history of 19th century theology one of the quirks of the Enlightenment is it had the biggest level of superstitions. Yeah. Um, all the things they were against, oh, wow. they also ended up having the Masons, a high level yeah, of the yeah, Masonry, right, the right. people doing uh, seances at the table in oh, Enlightenment, yeah, yeah, right, you know, educated right, right. culture. So you, you, you know, you all these uh, salons. Salons, yeah. yeah so, educated yeah. ladies in Boston. Boston, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so they were around, but they were, they were, like you said, they were displaced and then they were replaced and they didn't have the kind of impact they did, but they never would go away. Yeah, well, and, yeah, and yeah. you know you can you can look at this from the other direction at what's yeah. happened within the church. The church yeah. has effectively adopted the Enlightenment. Yes, the, 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 right. the church in America. Yeah. We we yeah. are still living yeah. in an Enlightenment world, and we're making yeah. Enlightenment art, art arguments yeah. into a world in which the Enlightenment is largely dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there you go. We, we catch on late. We catch on late. <laughs> well, but, but the other side of this, which yeah. is the other place where you see reenchantment happening in spades, um, is in the various neo-pagan movements. That oh are yeah. Happening. yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. Some of yeah. which are seriously scary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I'm not yeah. just talking in a supernatural sense. No, I'm no, talking no. about uh, the various white nationalist groups and things yes, like sure. that. That's right. You know, the I've, I've been reading a fair amount about this lately, and one of the things that you find with groups like that is the left is always talking about how violent the right is. Yeah. In terms of actual action, the left is far more violent. Yeah. But the difference is that when the radical right gets violent, there is going to be massive body count. Yeah, yeah. That's the difference yeah. between them. And these guys, and a lot of them are, are, are neo-Norse pagans. Not all Norse pagans yeah. are doing this, but... You know, yeah. there's the, the reenchant. This is exactly what Weber was worried about. The reenchantment yeah. can turn really scary really fast. Yeah, yeah. And so what you have is sort of a post-Christian reenchantment, which takes that out of the, out of puts mm -hmm. it on the margin. Therefore, it has no 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 way to help balance those tempers. So yeah, I always tell people in the universities because I run into the left all the time. You might not want to poke the bee's nest on the other side. <laughs> Right, because right. there is a lot of bees in that nest. Well, the problem is, is you know, is that most of those people, and you know, you and I come from a world, and I think you do as well, Glenn, where we grew up around the people that we were Make talking up that about. nest. <laughs> but most of these people have never, in a, in a in a personal way, actually encountered anything that that they're afraid of. They've That's never right. actually met these people or talked to them. That's right. <laughs> And, uh, and they have very little, I think, uh, appreciation or respect for these people. Yeah. Uh, and they, they largely just kind of exist kind of in the, in sort of in the netherworld, you know, the flyer of a country or whatever. And, and, but when you actually get to know some of these people, you learn a couple of things. One is that they've got a lot more on the ball than they're getting credit for. Mm -hmm. yeah. and two, uh, the things that the people that, who feel contempt for them are completely lost about, these people are really good at. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, I think that we should probably wrap things up uh, at this point. Um, but this is such a rich topic. Yeah, I think I we're going to have to revisit liked, it. Particularly liked your your little exploration of words and their meanings. Yeah. That was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, 
But why don't we go around the horn a little bit here to kind of just get some concluding thoughts. Let's start with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you've been stuck with three old guys who just love to talk a lot. (laughs) There's probably something you've been wanting to say and you've just been feeling like, I can't be rude. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay to be rude. That's right. (laughs) Jump right in. But anyway, any things that you want to share? Uh, One of the things that's been on my mind um, is the way that this applies in my own field, biblical studies, Hmm. where uh, you get people who want to look at the Bible as simply a historical artifact. Yeah. And... um, it's they'll and they'll they'll use a lot of the scientific terminology and mm-hmm. um, start look it, it's a really it's really a very disenchanted way of looking at the Bible. So addition to in adi- so there are two problems with this. The first one is of course is it true? But the one that's more related to our topic today is that if you're looking at it simply as um, this thing from thousands of years ago. What does this mean for Christians today? What, what application does it have? And um, the way I see people trying to re-enchant it is through um, reception history. Mm-hmm. So looking at how various people have interpreted it, and uh, that's all well and good, but there's no real... Uh, there's, it's not tied to anything. There's yeah. no... There, it's difficult to say why, um, why a... Uh, an interpretation that tells you to uh, uh, go to um, some poor country and help the people there is good, but an interpretation that says Jesus was basically a white nationalist is bad. Um, there's there's no objective anything that it's tied to, and so there, there's this attempt to re-enchant, but it's not... It, it's there's no there. there. There's no yeah. There's nothing yeah. there exactly. And the example you gave kind of ties into Tom's point. Yeah. You know when you have an inability to talk about good as good, uh, and just simply talk about good as your preferences. Yeah. Good as uh, you know, sort of like uh, like all the cool people think that this is good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Then, so it has then, to be good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, and, but what that leaves off, off the table is a lot of people who don't have a, a, an interest in that way of thinking about that as good. And, and often those people uh, are much more capable, as Glenn noted, of, of massive body count. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but any, th- any thoughts, Tom, that you want to share? Well, I think the interesting thing does come from biblical studies is it's, it's getting back to the scripture and actually not putting on the margins all of those aspects that make us uncomfortable because they seem enchanted and supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, that's first. I mean, as as someone you know, scripture is someone steeped in the, in, in a, the, the you know a tradition of scripture centeredness. Um, maybe all of those things scripture is referring to, and the realities they're claiming to, to us to interpret the the passages in light of, are actually what we should be interpreting them in light of. Yeah. And so I think this gets back to Glenn's point that this is what they're doing where it's working. Right. In the real sense, where you actually are having genuine, f- 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 uh, you know, a, the gospel, but in a full picture, rather than this kind of uh, truncated or, or, you know, shortened type of gospel, where you just, it's basically your best life now versus a yeah. conversion of everything, metanoia, yeah. 
from the ontology the all the way down. Yeah. To reality. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, as, you, as we conclude here, Glenn? Anything yeah. you, you, well, you wanted to say you haven't had a chance to say? Yeah. Just when I was telling Oz Guinness about the book I was writing with Jerry, you know, I, I raised the question and said, you know, basically we're asking the question, why is the gospel growing in the global south and not in the global north? And Oz, in his own inimitable way, mm -hmm. looked at me with an expression that said, you're an idiot, <laughs> um, and said, but the words that came out of his mouth were, well, they have a supernatural worldview. <laughs> As in, isn't it patently obvious that that's the difference? And I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that that really is the critical thing. You know, it, it's weird to say that Christians don't have a supernatural worldview, but we don't. Yeah. You know, take a look, you know, my, my favorite example, take a look at prayer. Yeah. The average Christian spends something like six minutes a day praying. If we believed in prayer, we would do it more. Right. You know, we, we don't see the connection between this world and something bigger. We don't see that overlap that we've talked about between the visible and invisible world. And therefore, we lose the enchantment. Frankly, we lose the gospel, and we definitely lose the power of God. And so that's what we that's what we need to recover. And that is what we also have to offer the world: a bigger vision, a re-enchanted vision of the world. But we've got to find it ourselves first. And just as we as as uh, we draw this to a conclusion, I think that a subject that I'd like to talk about is how can you how is it possible to have an enchanted world and refrigeration. I put it that way just because I think that yeah. at a sort of basic level, that's what people think you have to choose between. <laughs> you have to choose between air conditioning and antibiotics and meaning. Maybe I'll deal with that next week. <laughs> yes, that's right. It ties that's technology and, and salmon together. Because <laughs> I don't think that, that, I think that's a false dichotomy. I do too, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. I think we need to help people see that. Yes. Because I don't think that they really do see that. I think that most people think it is a choice. Either you are, yeah. you know, living in an enchanted world and you have yeah. typhoid. Where yeah. you're living in a disenchanted that's world right. and you have hospitals. That's and right. That's why the way people think. Or you need to be in a hospital if you have an enchanted <laughs> world. You <laughs> just, you know. That's right. Anyway, <laughs> well, we have to wrap it up. And uh, it's great to have you with us on the Theology Podcast. We appreciate uh, your, uh, your, your listening to our, our, our program. And we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.